You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Sweden in Focus, the locals podcast looking back at the week's main news in Sweden. We're recording this on Thursday the 19th of May. This has been a momentous week in Swedish history as the country submitted its application to NATO and committed itself to ending 200 years of official military non-alignment. Later on this week's show, we'll look at the history of neutrality and non-alignment, how it has helped shape Sweden's national identity and what it will mean when it's gone. To help us understand all this, we'll hear from Annika Bergman-Rosamund, Associate Professor in Political Science and International Relations at Lund University. So much else has happened on the NATO front this week that we're going to dedicate most of this episode to talking through the latest news and what it all means for Sweden's future. And all going well, we'll be back to discussing a broader range of topics next week. I'm Paul Amani and I'm joined for today's podcast by James Savage here in Stockholm and Richard Orange and Becky Waterton in Malmö. Hello, everybody. Hello. 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 So you're looking forward to a holiday this coming week? We've got Ascension Thursday coming up. Well, I hope the weather's nice. Because then it's quite a nice, it's a nice time of year to have a holiday. So they do have quite a lot of days off this time of year in Sweden. We've got National Day followed soon after that. It's you know, it's why not? It's nice. What happens? What happens on Ascension? Does anything special happen? Jesus flies to heaven. <laughs> That's what it's called in Sweden. It's called it's called Christ's Flight to Heaven Day. Yes. Christy Himmelfeld's dog. And there's also um, a slightly weird tradition of a yak utta, which is when you you go out into the forest early on Ascension Day and and have a picnic and wait to hear the first cuckoo. But I don't actually know any Swedes that do that. <laughs> I've that never real? heard of anybody doing is it. That, it is a real thing, but I've never heard of it. This is the first time I heard about it. it was, we did a word of the day on it. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it sounds very sweet. And there's like all these traditions that like you, you can ask the cuckoo, when will I get married? And then every cuckoo cry in response is a year. And you can also ask the cuckoo, when am I going to die? And every cry is the amount of years you have left. <laughs> So I think this is what Swedes used to do before, you know, TV and stuff. You just went out and you had to do something on your day off. So finally it came, the moment we've all been waiting for and I've been talking about for weeks. Sweden submitted its application to NATO after the ruling Social Democrats announced they were dropping their long-standing opposition to membership. This meant that six of the eight parties in Parliament supported joining and on Wednesday morning Sweden and Finland's ambassadors to NATO handed over their country's applications. But before Sweden can join NATO, its accession needs to be ratified by 30 member states And Turkey's President Erdogan wasted no time in indicating that his country did not want to see Sweden and Finland as members. Can you give us the background on that, Richard? 
Well, according to Swedish politicians, Turkey kept this incredibly quiet in the kind of months running up to the decision. And just pretty much the day before Sweden was, was, was having its vote, Erdogan made this speech where he said, we're not happy with Sweden and Finland joining NATO because in his eyes, they're a, a safe haven for various groups in, uh, from Turkey, but primarily Kurdish sort of independence fighters, which he th- sees as terrorists. And I think also the US and the EU see as terrorists if they're the PKK, but also, you know, people who are connected to the Gulenist movement who mounted a coup attempt a few years ago, and also apparently some of the people on this list are journalists. Swedish dipl- So then he came up with a list of 33 people that he wanted Sweden and Finland to extradite. And then Sweden and Finland refused. And then yesterday, after Sweden and Finland's ambassadors handed in their letters of indication, which is the sort of the way you apply for NATO, that was supposed to be uh, carried out in a day, you know, the same day the NATO ambassadors would meet and approve it, and then the, the process would move forward. But... At that meeting, Turkey's ambassador put their foot down and said, no, we're not going to approve this, which means that this initial phase that should have just been almost a formality could draw out for weeks or we, we don't know how long. So one thing that I found really interesting is that it all, as, every, as so much else does in Sweden, it all goes back to the process by which Magdalena Andersson was voted in as prime minister because there was this independent called Amina Kakabave. And apparently, I read in, one, in an article yesterday, one of her demands that was never published, <laughs> publicised, the price what she had for allowing Magdalena Anderson to, to go through as prime minister was extra funding for the independent Kurdish region of northern Syria, which is something that a place that Erdogan sees as, you know, a stronghold of the PKK. And so when Erdogan said they're even in the parliament, she came out a few days ago and said, well, he was talking about me. But there are other things. Apparently, there are, there are limits to Swedish uh, arms imports to Turkey, for example, because uh, fears they'll be used against people in northern Syria. And uh, that's another one of their demands. They want that lifted. So there's a whole li- there's a, I think there was a list of 10 demands that they published in a newspaper in Turkey. The bottom line is that this could roll on for months. That later demand is perhaps one of those that they could compromise on, perhaps with some assurances from the Turks about how the how the weapons, what the weapons would be used for, and then Sweden will lift the arms embargo. You can see that there's room for compromise there. But I think the other thing that's interesting here is it's not there's it's a tri it's there's a, there's sort of a triangular negotiations because it's not just Sweden and the Turks, is it? It's it's Sweden and other NATO countries, particularly the US and the Turks. And you know what would the Americans be able to give the Turks in order for them to fill a got something and and therefore let let the Swedes and and the Finns into NATO. And there's talk about the Turks wanting to buy some American fighter jets. I believe it's the F-18 that they want. And that they and they um, and, and the Americans have been refusing, and perhaps uh, you know if the Americans were to compromise a bit on allowing the Turks to have those jets, then that might be a, a, a sort of compromise that would that would move the Turks along. I think also it's interesting to see the effect it's had back in Sweden. Like the uh, the Green Party came out a couple of days ago this week saying that they want there to be a democracy clause for Sweden. They want Sweden to say that they're absolutely not going to accept nuclear weapons. And um, the left party and the Green Party have both been saying that what, what Erdogan's been doing is kind of, it exemplifies the fact that joining NATO 
can also be dangerous in their eyes because they're seeing it as as Sweden having to compromise on making their own security decisions. This whole story with Turkey is igniting the NATO debate before the Swedish election as well because I think the Greens and the left committed to being the non-NATO parties. So they're going to emphasise anything that shows that NATO, that the downsides of a possible NATO application. I think, you know, what, what's potentially difficult here is that is for the Social Democrats particularly and other parties on the left side of politics that have strong support from within the Kurdish communities. Look, the Kurdish communities are big in Sweden, so and so they're important to all parties, but I think particularly to the Social Democrats traditionally, it becomes very difficult for them if they have to make serious concessions on things that are really important to people of Kurdish descent living in Sweden. That is very, very tough. So they're going to be they're going to be hoping, I think, for a lot of help from the Americans here to get them out of a very sticky situation. A big thank you to everyone who has taken our survey so far. We read all the comments and feedback and we do want to hear from as many listeners as possible. So if you can, please visit the link in the episode description on your podcast app. Russia's President um, Vladimir Putin has repeatedly cited NATO's expansion as a provocation and has long stressed that Sweden and Finland would face some sort of retaliation were they to join the alliance. And this is something that a lot of people here have been very nervous about. So how has Russia reacted to Sweden deciding to submit its application, Becky? So Russia has basically reacted, or Putin has basically reacted, by saying that Sweden and Finland joining NATO represents no threat to Russia. But he did kind of clarify that by saying the expansion of military infrastructure into this territory would provoke our response. So it seems like he's saying we don't mind that you're joining, but we would mind if you start putting NATO bases on our border. Although, again, pre-joining NATO and even just even for the last few years, he's been saying there'll be military consequences if you join. Um, he's never really been specific on what that means, if that means that he's just going to fly into Swedish airspace a bit more, if he's going to actually, you know stage an invasion or anything, which I think is, is probably quite unlikely. Isn't he moving the goalposts a bit, really? He's, you can join, but now he's sabre-rattling he's about if they put NATO bases in Sweden and Finland. I mean, it's a massive miscalculation from, I don't know who, I don't know whether it's Putin or someone in his leadership, but this weird ready-written treaty they published in December in which, you know, NATO would happily undersign that, you know, this is the sphere of interest and Sweden and Finland will never join NATO, expansion will grow to halt, no military exercises on Swedish and Finnish territory. And, and everyone was like, what, what is this? Uh, and it's totally backfired. By doing that, he's actually pushed, he's made the thing happen that they were saying that they were trying to write into treaties as impossible. So it's, it's entirely backfired. And, and, and so it's, it's to hide that. Definitely. If you listen to Sauli Ninister, the president of Finland, for him, that was a really, really important moment because if Russia is when Russia was demanding that Finland must commit to never joining NATO that was what moved him towards he you know as he said that's what moved him towards a more sort of NATO positive attitude on the basis that Russia can't have a veto over our international connections so or our alliances so so for him that was that was a massive miscalculation that I think has been under appreciated in, mu in much of the commentary about this um, because and, and because once and once Finland and once Ninista decided to go into NATO I mean that's one of the things that above above many other factors has pushed Sweden into joining NATO because of what we were saying about you know Sweden not wanting to be the only country in the Baltics to be outside apart from Russia. So if, if and when uh, Sweden and Finland um, become members of NATO it will mean that the entire Nordic region will uh, be part of the same defensive alliance. What kind of impact will that have on the unity of the Nordic countries? 
a significant impact, I think. You know, what you've seen over the last, really sort of over the last half century is that the Nordic countries, this kind of sense of Nordic unity has been sort of pulled in different directions but because they've all chosen slightly different international commitments. You know, the, some of them are in the EU, some of them aren't. That's still the case. Norway is still not in the EU and neither is Iceland either. But I mean, if we talk, but if we particularly talk about the about those that are geographically contiguous Nordic countries in Sweden, Finland, Denmark and Norway, Three of those are in the EU and one is not. And um, up until now, two have been in NATO and two have not been. So in, in terms of their sort of political unity, in terms of their political, you know, the political projects they can they, they can push forward to, to, together, but and also in terms of their strategic planning, they've been in different worlds. And this whole sort of kind of utopian <laughs> uh, dream of Nordic unity has been has been a little bit irrelevant because because in, in practice they've been so divided in all, in all sorts of other by all sorts of other things and now certainly on the strategic front they can plan together well you know once silly Sweden and Finland are in NATO and assuming that happens they can plan their they can plan their, their um, military strategies together they can coordinate much more within their armed forces perhaps you know save a bit of money uh, in the longer run on, um, on, on defence compared to what they would have had to spend otherwise. And that is, um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a really important thing. And I think what's going to be really interesting to see over the next few years is how the EU debate in Norway develops, because that then becomes in a sort of, in the sort of political and, and um, sort of broader strategic terms, the big gap in the continental Nordic countries. Norway being outside the EU is, is the last obstacle, really, to, to real full Nordic unity. One thing I thought was really interesting is, is Carl Bildt. Did you see that in his blog, which I'm a, not actually a regular reader of, but everyone else was talking about how this was the end of 200 years of neutrality. And he said it's actually 600 years since the end of the Kalmar Union. This is the first time in 600 years that all of the Nordic countries have been united. It's the uh, Kalmar reunion, if the you like. The Kalmar reunion, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And one part of Sweden that's always mentioned in this context of uh, defence is the Baltic island of Gotland. And a month before... Russia's invasion, the Swedish army deployed armoured combat vehicles on the island uh, while Russia was stepping up its activity in the Baltic Sea. And the strategic importance of the Baltic Sea is seen as crucial by NATO. How well protected is Sweden in the Baltic in this sort of interim period, Richard? Um, well, not particularly. I mean, it, I, mean I, went, I went over to, uh, to Gotland, um, I think in January or something, and it is quite striking how tiny the the presence the, the military presence there is and i think now yes they've got other parts of the army can come over at short notice but compared to to, to how defended it was in the cold war it's still it's still just enough to, just enough towards someone just enough perhaps to make anyone think twice but um but then again we've seen this um big us assault ship which is coming in to dock by stockholm and the brits said um when boris johnson was over in that treaty that they published it said that we will send you know perhaps naval forces air forces whatever in the future it didn't say exactly when but i imagine that nato will keep a fairly constant presence in the baltic sea just to, to sort of ensure that nothing happens because one of the things defense planners have been worried about is once Gotland is in NATO, you know, Russia's lost its its chance. So so this is the sort of last opportunity to 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 but I I mean I think it's fairly far fetched 
what Sweden has been doing over the last few years and what, you know, what NATO is, is, is very keen to do is to show that they have presence in the Baltic. And so, you know, they, they have a lot of these um, ex joint exercises between Sweden, Finland and NATO, even, even before the NATO application, you know, joint exercises in the Baltic Sea region with, you know, ships from all across NATO and, you know, and, 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 and you know, air support and all of those things. So showing that actually, you know, we have presence here. You can't trust in the fact that even before Sweden is in NATO that we won't protect Sweden and you know and Sweden showing that it has you know sophisticated high-tech uh, particularly air force um, but also 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 navy and submarines exactly so the point is you know is there is there enough to deter Russia Sweden and NATO certainly want to make sure there is. Swedish officials and intelligence agencies um, say that they really don't expect Russia to attack Sweden militarily, but the country is on high alert for cyber warfare in the shape of things like disinformation campaigns and cyber attacks. And we spoke at length a couple of weeks ago about how prepared Sweden is to combat propaganda campaigns and disinformation, but how well prepared is it for cyber attacks? It's harder with cyber attacks. I mean, Magdalena Andersson, uh, when she talked about the threat from Russia, she she specifically said cyber attacks as being one of the things she was worried about. And it is harder to protect Sweden from cyber attacks. There are various government agencies that are charged with protecting Sweden from cyber attacks, particularly the Minderheitum for Samhötsvidebredskap, the Civil Contingencies Agency, which is charged with, with with increasing Sweden's resilience in 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 the cyber in the cyber area. But the problem that that any country has in protection from cyber attacks is that it's not simply state, you know, government agencies that are that are vulnerable. It's also private enterprise. And, um, you know, a lot of the critical infrastructure of a country is, 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 is managed by, by private enterprise. Think particularly here in the area of, um, of payments. Uh, so a country like Sweden is very reliant on electronic payments, as we've discussed in this podcast before. Very few payments are made with cash. You have systems like Swish and Bank ID, Bank ID, that are sort of effectively monopolistic in their in their areas. So, you know, peer-to-peer uh, -peer payments in, the term, in, in terms of Swish and bank, bank ED, which is used for authorising all sorts of online payments and other payments. So, you know, these, these particular systems are potentially vulnerable, or at least even if one assumes that, they're, that, they're, that their security preparations are of the highest standard, if they were to be downed, it would cause it was would cause you know significant problems in Sweden. But what the civil contingencies agency is trying to do is to prepare private companies to increase their level of security, to do proper risk analysis, so that the risk of cyber attacks damaging critical infrastructure in Sweden or damaging the economy is is kept is kept to a minimum. But you know you can't you can't rule out the the, the possibility that something could happen. Now, we've spoken in previous weeks about uh, why Sweden felt compelled to move towards NATO as it became apparent that Finland was going to apply for membership. And once Sweden got on board with the idea, the countries have carefully choreographed their decision-making timetable to ensure that they would be able to submit their applications simultaneously this week. And when Finland's president, Sauli Ninista, made a state visit to Sweden this week, he addressed the parliament in Swedish, highlighting the neighbouring country's deep historical and cultural ties. How close are Sweden and Finland, Becky? I mean, they're extremely close, not just as Nordic countries, but also Swedish is one of the official languages of Finland. There's a Swedish-speaking minority in Finland. Finland used to be part of Sweden for a long time. Sweden always refer to Finland as little brother, 
um that they've again they've kind of had this this thing of Finland sak vår like Finland's Finland's situation is ours Finland's case is ours whatever whatever you do against Finland we're going to stand up for you and yeah all of all of the stuff we were talking about last week with these military exercises that Finland and Sweden have been working on together but, but I think like like all Scandinavian countries Sweden is is slightly bigger than the rest and historically you know it has often controlled Norway and, and controlled uh Finland and so so there's this sense of sort of brothership and, and neighborhood but 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 all of the smaller countries also slightly ridicule and slightly resent Sweden and Finland is no exception because I, I I lived in London in a flat with with Finns so, and uh, and and they had a kind of a I don't know their view of Swedes they they, they saw Sweden as as sort of slightly fussy and a bit sort a bit of soft. men who wear moisturizer and you know they they, <laughs> they 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 kind of have a sort of more macho they had a kind of more macho sense and the Swedes were seen as a bit soft yeah. and I think in terms of mil- and the Finns have this idea of sisu you know this kind of toughness and and they definitely don't see the Swedes as as tough as they are and 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 that I think plays over into the sort of military discussions that you know that the, the Swedes didn't come to their rescue in the Second World War, but, but that's just the sort of background. But but overall, it is this sense of of, of brotherliness. You know? Yeah, but there I is mean, that even, in the in the in the background. Even if you look at the way Finns the way Finns use saunas, they whip each other with birch twigs when they get out of the sauna. I can't imagine any Swedes doing they that. They have They're great just... disdain of Swedish saunas, <laughs> yeah, which, which just... are not deemed sufficiently hot, <laughs> yeah, or sufficiently manly. <laughs> and they're also seen as as a little bit not 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 Spartan enough. Like if you go to the the, the Finnish islands, they're kind of all the stugas are kind of stripped down it's basically like no electricity outdoor toilet you as soon as you come across to the sort of swedish islands it's kind of luxury villas and it's, it's definitely yeah, a different a bottle of attitude. champagne in the sauna yeah <laughs> but i mean i think if you look at sweden if you look at sweden's 20th century history and even before that you know so many of the big decisions that sweden have made can be explained at least partially through their relationship with finland and i think you know not joining the second world war on the allied side was you know there were lots of explanations behind that but you know a very big part of that was the fact that finland was at war with russia and joining on the opposite side to finland would have been almost unthinkable and then you know you look at you look at other you know decisions about staying neutral during the during the period after the second world war against russia you know the fact that finland was was under this uncomfortable kind of con- semi control of the russians this finlandization as it's become known that fact also was one of the things that that, that that weighed into sweden's decision not to join nato earlier you know there are lots and lots of ways in which finland's closeness to sweden has has affected swedish policy down the years When the outside world thinks of Sweden, there are a few things that rush through the collective consciousness. ABBA, IKEA, maybe fermented herring, but definitely peace and neutrality. Sweden officially abolished its policy of neutrality when it joined the European Union in 1995, but has stayed out of military alliances until now. I spoke yesterday to Annika Bergman-Rosamond, Associate Professor in Political Science and International Relations at Lund University, to find out more about the history of Swedish neutrality and its bearing on how Sweden sees itself. We'll hear what she had to say, and then we'll return to the studio to talk more about the emotional impact of this week's historic shift in Swedish policy. I began by asking her where Swedish neutrality originates. It originates from the 19th century, the very early 19th century, 
when um, uh, we had a king important, uh, imported, if you like, from France, Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte, yeah. who then became Colliouan. And he was really the person who was determined to direct Sweden away from uh, going to war with Russia and seeking more of a Western identity and Western partners, and then assume that neutrality would be the platform that would enable Sweden to do so. Later on, it was very much associated with the Social Democratic Party in the 20th century. This became a bit of a mantra within the social democratic movement that neutrality would serve a Swedish interests well um, globally. How did Swedish neutrality manifest itself in the 20th century? Well, I think uh, a, lot, a lot of your listeners would probably be quite aware of the fact that Sweden in part was critiqued for maintaining a neutral position during the war, enabling, for example, export of German or of iron ore for German um, markets and in, in a way sustaining the war industry in Germany. But Sweden also used its neutrality in order to maintain stable and supportive relations with its neighbours. So neutrality is very much associated with Sweden's effort to find a middle way during World War II but then after World War II, it took on more of an internationalist, if you'd like, peace-mongering um, sort of aspect and became very much associated with Sweden's active internationalism. Sweden's dog Hammarskjöld served as Secretary General of the United Nations in the 1950s. Was that a time when the principles of peace and neutrality were at their strongest in Sweden, would you say? Perhaps not at its strongest, but if we think of Dag Hammarskjöld in, in particular, he's often assumed to be the father of modern peacekeeping. And the very fact that he was Swedish and he, if you like, got the United Nations to engage much more with international peacekeeping, that in part also became a Swedish agenda and closely associated with Sweden and Sweden participated in a lot of UN-led peacekeeping throughout the Cold War and maintained that kind of activism post-Cold War. So the, the, the sort of self-narrative of being a peace-loving nation, I think, became stronger with UN activism and also UN leadership. How important was and is neutrality and non-alignment to Swedes and Sweden's sense of identity? I think it's a latent uh, identity that is there. And at times when we've been faced with a big change, that's when it's come to the fore and people have really started to, talk, uh, to articulate their understanding of neutrality. What does it mean now that this latent identity marker is disappearing? I think that uh, our notion of neutrality as it was understood during the Cold War, but also prior to that, throughout the 20th century, in some ways took another form and changed in character with our membership of the European Union, just like you said initially. 
and non-alignment then, if you like, replace neutrality. And having studied this for uh, numerous years, I find it very interesting how neutrality again is upheld as a Swedish identity marker, something that, if you like, has helped us to shape the very nation we are today. Uh, but as I said, it seems like it comes and goes a little. And uh, and at the moment, uh, with neutrality being a la mode, if you like, and also on the international agenda with the war in Ukraine, I think people have sort of re-invoked their sense of being a neutral nation, at least in some quarters of society. That was Annika Berryman-Rosamond from Lund University, and we'll have more of the interview in an article on The Local. She talks, for example, about how unsettling this is for social democrats, for whom non-alignment has always underpinned their identity. And the same by extension is true for a lot of Swedes. And we had an article on the site this week from David Crouch, suggesting that we should mourn the passing of Sweden's neutrality. Why is this such an emotional issue? I think for a lot of people in Sweden, it's been kind of comforting to know that you're neutral, that you're not going to get involved, you're not going to be stuck on the side of someone you don't agree with. Um, but I mean, in in practice, it's, Sweden actually hasn't been that neutral. There's it, not really ever... I mean, there's a word for Ruskrik, like fear of Russia, but there's not really a word for Jenkskrik, fear of the US. That doesn't really exist. So I don't know. I, th- I think it's emotional, but it's it's more in an ideological sense, not a practical sense. Like, I don't think anyone is actually sad about the fact that we've officially chosen sides because we did that a long time ago, say on this. But, I mean, but there was this point in the 1960s where... Palma in particular turned Swedish neutrality from a sort of real a, a, an expression of real politique as this 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 you know an idea that we, we were basically doing what was right for Sweden and keeping out of wars for its for, for Sweden's own sake and sort of he tried to add a sort of moral dimension to Swedish neutrality where he was taking us for instance a very hard stand against American actions in the in the Vietnam War to an extent that angered America. Of course, it's interesting to note that while he was doing this, Sweden was still doing um, secret arms deals with the Americans under the table. So, you know, the news of which emerged many years later. So so, so even then it was a bit of a, it, it, it was a bit of, of, of a mirage. But for some Swedes, and, you know, particularly on the left, they saw, you know, that Sweden had, well, they, you know, called it a, a moral superpower. And that made them feel kind of quite pleased with themselves. And this neutrality that helped underpin that self-image, at least, of being a moral superpower, you know, that's something that people are going to miss. I think it also ties into the sort of the economic uh, setup that Sweden had in the 60s and 70s and the 80s, you know, where it was a sort of a kind of a, a compromise between the state control of the Soviet uh block and and sort of raw capitalism in the west and this was seen as part of this 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 sensible middle way that sweden took not only economically but also in 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 pol- in geopolitics in, in in security policy and the economic side of it is long gone you know so in the 90s you know the state was rewired everything was you know sweden pushed privatization faster than anyone else and, and the social democrats have had to take that for, for a lot of people non-alignment was the last remaining bit that made Sweden special. And now that's gone. Sweden's just like any other country in in Europe or, or the West. 
That takes us to the end of this week's Sweden in Focus. Thank you for listening. And thank you, as always, to James Savage, Richard Orange and Becky Waterton. And thank you to this week's special guest, Annika Berryman-Rosamond. Please share your feedback by checking the episode description notes in your app and clicking on the survey there. And we'll be back again next Saturday. Until then, take care. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.